I, I have no greater privilege in my whole entire life than getting to share this message with you. A message that changed my life. I was 17 on the varsity baseball team at my high school. And you know what? I was a pretty good kid. There wasn't a, there wasn't a ton that I, I look back on my life and regret. There, wasn't, there weren't these big things that I did. That my, my parents would have looked at, at you and, and said, you know, Mike was a, a pretty good kid. He, he got good grades and he, he was pretty obedient and he, he did all the things we would have asked him to do as a kid. I, I felt really good about myself. I, you know, compared to others, I was really pretty good. And then one night, uh, this, this girl, one of my friends, she, she invites me to, to her youth group. And I thought, well, I don't have any need for church. I'm a pretty good kid. I don't, I don't have a need for, for all that stuff that they teach you. I'm a pretty good kid. And, and so I said no. And she continued seven more times asking me if I would just, if I would just want to come to youth group with her. And I said no time and time again until finally I was like, She's just going to keep asking, and so I'll go. I, I don't need that church. I don't need that Jesus stuff. I'm, I'm a pretty good kid, and, and, and so I show up, and, and they have some cool youth group stuff, right? They've got skateboard ramps and pizza and games that I would never play in a million years unless I was at youth group, but that night, they, they talked about something that I had never heard before, the concept of sin and the standard of God. And I learned that night that, that if my standard of being good was set on other kids my age or other people and what they were doing, then, then I was a pretty good kid. But, but I learned that if, if my standard matched God's standard, that all I could claim was being broken and in need of something that I couldn't do for myself. Like I said, I'm so privileged to share this message with you tonight. But before we get to the message of hope, we have to start way back kind of close to the beginning. So if you have your Bibles, and I know that you brought them here with you tonight, open up just a few chapters into the book of Genesis, chapter 3. So when we started, we, we talked about creation. We talked about that in the beginning, God... In the beginning, God created. He created the heavens and the earth. He, he created the, the six days of creation. He created the stars and the moon and the sun. He created the air and the water. He created the, the plants and the animals. And then he created us, his crowning achievement, his, 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 his creation that he would delight in. And Adam and Eve would walk in the garden in the cool of the day they would they would they would eat from all of the trees in the garden except for one god god gave them everything that they could have ever hoped for he he would care for them he would love them they would do life with him they were with the master 24/7 and all he asked was that they would choose him by not eating of one tree in the garden. That tree was the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and he, said, he says to them, you can eat of every other tree, but, but don't eat of that one tree. The rules were clear. The standard was set. And then in verse 6 of chapter 3, it says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And in that moment... We see humanity rebel against the God of the universe, the God that delights in, in their, their relationship. 
And some things happen. Some things, some things happen after they eat of this tree that they weren't supposed to eat from. Adam and Eve are, are walking together after they eat, and they, they notice something for the first time. They, they had never recognized the fact that they were naked before. But because they ate of the tree that they weren't supposed to eat of, they, they recognized for the first time that they had guilt and shame. They were aware of their nakedness. And, and, and so they did whatever they could. So they, they, they cut these fig leaves up and they, they made garments for themselves to cover up their guilt and to cover up their shame. Verse 7 says, then the, the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They did what we still do. They tried to cover their own sin. They tried to cover their own guilt and their own shame, but they couldn't do it. And so God, he kills some animals, and he makes true coverings for them so that even in the midst of their of their guilt and their shame and their sin, that they, they might not feel shameful, that they might not feel guilty. And then in verse 15, look at verse 15. He makes a promise. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, conflict between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He... He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That he is a promise. This, 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 is, this is God speaking to Satan. That, that God would send a he. There was a promise of a, a he that would someday strike a death blow to Satan. And the Lord continues to, to work. But, but as we talked about this morning, the, the cost of sin is... Separation from God. And so Adam and Eve find themselves separate, waiting for this he who would come. Waiting for this he that God would send. And then we talked about, on day, on, in the second message, in John 1.29. You can flip back to John. In John 1.29, we see the next day, he saw Jesus coming towards him. And John the Baptist said these words, Behold. In other words, look, gaze, stare. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. His life was perfect. It was sinless. His, his death and his resurrection his ascension, his return. He, he wasn't just a, a moral example. He didn't just live so that we could see how we ought to live. He lived so that he could die. And not just die in vain, not just die because that's what people do. He would die as the perfect God-man. 100% God and 100% human. And he would die in our place. And there's hints all throughout the Gospel of John. All throughout the Gospel of John, there are hints to, to what this Jesus came to do. Look at, uh, flip forward a few chapters, John 10. We're going to start in John 10. We're going to work through a lot of the Gospel of John tonight as we examine the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. John 10.10. 10. The thief, Satan comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. See, you have to understand shepherding. We don't, we don't do a lot of shepherding in, in our culture. Any of you guys shepherds out there? You guys go tend the sheep on, a, on the weekends? No? We don't do a lot of shepherding. But the job of the shepherd was very clear, and it was very big. See, see, back then, sheep and livestock, that was their money. They, that was how they, they afforded things. They would trade and barter, and, and, and the, the job of the shepherd was to protect the sheep, was to provide for them, to make sure that they ate and drank, and to make sure that they stayed alive so that the, the family that owned them could, could eventually sell them or, or trade them to get the things that they need, the grain, the fruits, the, the, the wine, whatever, whatever it was that they needed. 
And so in this, Jesus is, is using his most used illustration that he does in all of Scripture. He calls himself the shepherd. And not just the shepherd, but the good shepherd. His job is, is to come and, and as opposed to the thief, Satan, which came to steal and kill and destroy, his job is to give his sheep the abundant life. This incredible opportunity to do life with God again. And he says, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And we get a, a hint at what Jesus came to do. In chapter 11, there's another hint. We have uh, the story of the, the raising of Lazarus. La Lazarus was uh, the brother of Mary and Martha. And Lazarus was a friend of Jesus. He was following him around, and, and, and Lazarus had died. And they put Lazarus in this tomb, and, and for four days he sat dead in that tomb. And Jesus comes on the scene, and, and, and he, he speaks to Lazarus' sisters, and, and Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. This is what... He says, John 11, verses 25 and 26, Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. We see that he calls himself the resurrection and the life. We see a hint towards what he came to do. In John 13 and 14, Jesus is, is just mere hours away from the, the, the scene that you saw right here, carried out right here where, where Biscuit came forward and executed Jesus. I'll never get over that. That scene, Jesus just hours, in, in John chapter 13 and 14, he's just hours away from, from the, the part where he would be betrayed and, and, and he would be put on the cross. And he has this Passover meal with, with his disciples. The, the Passover meal was significant because it pointed back to the Exodus. And if you know the story of the Exodus, it's really important to the story of Jesus. Because as the Israelites were enslaved in, Israel, in, in Egypt, they, um, they were being freed. The, you know, the whole let my people go, Moses thing. And, and so they were being freed. And, and God says, okay, this is what I want you to do. I want you to, to take some blood of a lamb and paint it on your doorpost. And, and at night, the angel of death will pass over, pass over, get it? The Passover supper will pass over the houses with, with the lamb's blood on the doorpost. But everyone else who doesn't have the blood of the lamb, their firstborn will be killed. And it was, it was God's way of, of freeing his people from Egypt, but it was God's way of giving us a little hint as to what is to come. That there will be a greater lamb whose blood will not just cover the sins, but will take away the sins of the world. And he shares this Passover meal and he institutes what's called communion. It's a remembrance of his disciples that he would both give up his body and shed his blood on their behalf. It's, it's during this meal that he would foretell two heartbreaking stories. The first, the betrayal of one of his closest followers. A guy by the name of Judas, he was their, he was their uh, treasurer. He would, he would take care of their money. And, and Judas, from the very beginning, there were, a little, there were things, some things off about Judas. We start to, no to notice that he cared more about money than he did about Jesus. And so what, Je what Jesus starts to do is he, at, this, at this supper is he starts to foretell that, that Judas or, or one of his disciples would betray him. And what happens in the story is that Judas is offered a measly amount of money to hand Jesus over. And for whatever reason, Judas be betrays Jesus. We'll get to that in a minute. But he also tells the story of Peter's denial of Jesus. Peter, in the inner circle of Jesus, Peter, a guy who often spoke first and thought later, he says, I'll never leave you. And Jesus says, before the rooster crows three times, you will 
or before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he, he, he foretells Peter's denial. And you just kind of feel the weight of that room. Like imagine you're in that room. You can feel the weight of, of what's going on there. They're, they're, they're taking this Passover supper, which is typically a joyous celebration. And Jesus makes it about him. And he starts, to, he starts to tell stories about his body and his blood. And, and he starts to tell stories about Judas who will betray him. And, and he starts to tell stories about Peter who will deny him. And the weight of that room just feels so heavy. And Jesus knew it. And so in John 14, starting in verse 1, Jesus addresses his disciples he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God and believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am you may also be. And you know the way to where I'm going. And so in the weight of this heavy room and in the middle of this heavy meal, Jesus points them to their eternity. He, he reminds them that, that in his father's house, in, in heaven, there are many rooms and that he is going to go there and he's going to prepare a place for them. That this is not the end. The, the, the heavy feeling, the, the, the future that, that holds just hours away for Jesus on the cross, it is just a step towards heaven, a step towards spending the rest of, of their lives with Jesus, the rest of their lives with the Father, the rest of their lives in paradise. And I wonder as, as they were sitting there and he starts to, to, to speak, I wonder if they started to remember all of the things that Jesus had taught. I wonder if they, they remembered all of the things that Jesus had said. Remember, uh, last night we walked through all of these different stories where Jesus starts to reveal who he is and why he came. I wonder if they remembered the raising of Lazarus. I, I wonder if they remembered all, all of the miracles that Jesus had done. I, I wonder if, if they remembered all of the times that, they, that he had revealed to them that he came to give his life I wonder if they remember John 10, 10, and 11, that he came to lay his life down for the sheep. Were they picking up on the hints that he had dropped about his coming sacrifice? And then in John 18, John 18, the, the, the foretelling of Judas' betrayal actually comes to fruition. It shouldn't be a surprise. Jesus is... God in the flesh, and so Jesus knew that Judas would be the one who betrays him. And so they're in the, the Garden of Gethsemane, the Garden of Gethsemane, and they're surrounded by olive trees, and, and they're praying. And, and as they're praying, the, Judas walks up with these soldiers, and they're there to, to take Jesus away. And they say, we're here for, for Jesus of Nazareth. And Peter, remember I told you, Peter, he has a great heart, but often Peter acts first and thinks later. So Peter takes out his sword and he cuts off the ear of one of the soldiers. And Jesus, remember I told you Jesus is a reconciler? Remember I told you Jesus loves people? And he picks up that ear and he puts it back on and right then and there he heals that soldier. And one more time he shows the world who he is. And so Judas betrays Jesus. They arrest him. And from that moment of the arrest in the garden to the cross is just eight short hours. Eight hours between the time Judas would betray Jesus and the time where he would be hung on a cross. And between those eight hours, there were six different trials Six different trials. We only depicted one trial, but, but in, in reality, there were six trials. Three Jewish trials and three Roman trials, all of which were illegal. 
none of which were, were legal. So, so all of these trials happened in, in the dead of night. None provided any credible witnesses. None provided any evidence whatsoever. These weren't trials. It was a sham. And then in John 18, verse 12 and following, we see Pontius Pilate come on the scene. He's the, the Brutus character. And Pontius Pilate is the, the Roman gover, governor. He's not the, the ruler of all uh, of, um, of Rome. He's not the Caesar. But, but he lived on the coast of the Mediterranean. He had this lavish palace, this incredible place. It was opulent. It was excessive. He was a military man. He was hardened after much battle. And yet even Pilate doesn't want to mess with Jesus. In John 18, verses 29 through 31, he basically says, you know what? I don't want any part of this Jesus. I don't, I don't, want, to, I don't want his blood to be on my hands. And so you Jews, you, you handle it yourself. Just you guys take care of it. This is not, this doesn't have anything to do with me. But Pilate's curious. He has heard the things that happened. He heard the stories about Jesus. And so in his curiosity, in verse 33, it says that, that Pilate entered his headquarters again. And he, he called Jesus into him. And he said to him, are you the king of the Jews? See, there was one, there was one thing Jesus could be that would cause the Roman government to care. If they felt like Jesus was there to overtake the Roman government, that's the one thing that Pilate cared about. And so he asked them, are you the king of the Jews? And in verse 36 and following, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. Remember, he, told, he tells Peter to put his sword away. He says, this is not our war. Our war is not against flesh and blood. He says, put away your sword. And he heals the soldier. And he says, if this was our war, we would have been fighting so that I wouldn't be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Verse 37, then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. And so Pilate, Pilate speaks with Jesus and he, just, he confirms that he's not, his goal is not to become a ruler over Rome or, or to defeat them in a military battle. Jesus says, my, my kingdom is not of this world. And so, and so Pilate goes out and he says, he says, I find no guilt in him. And the crowds, they start to uproar. The crowds of Jewish people who by this time have just galvanized around the Pharisees. They've, they've grown together. They've united around the Pharisees. And, and, and they find themselves just, just chanting, just like you heard in the, in the skit. Kill him, kill him, kill him. They, they, they are not satisfied with Pilate's answer. And so he tries to save face. Pilate was a political ruler. He tries to save face, and he, he comes up with this idea. Once a, once a year, they would, or once uh, every so often, they would do this uh, prisoner transfer, prisoner exchange. And, and so he finds the worst of the worst. He finds the worst of the worst. This guy, Barabbas, was, was, was the worst of the worst. He, he was a, a murderer. He was, I mean, anything you can think of, this guy was the worst. And so he goes, for sure. Surely they're going to choose Jesus, to release Jesus over Barabbas. They know what he did. So he brings Barabbas up. And he says, have your choice. And by this time, the, 
Jewish rulers were so overwhelmed with hatred and fear for who Jesus might actually be that they choose to release the hardened criminal Barabbas back into society and put to death the Savior of the world. In John 19, 1, Pilate tries to appease the crowds. He, he takes, it says, that, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. That's a very simple way of describing a very excruciating time in Jesus' life. He was, he was beaten and whipped. On the ends of the whips were shards of glass that would pull the skin away from Jesus' body. This was, this was not a simple beating. This was, this was meant to leave lasting scars. And Pilate, in an effort again to, to appease the crowds, in verse 4, he goes out and says to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may... Know that I find no guilt in him. Like, look at what I did. Look, I gave him a punishment. Will this appease you? Is this, is this going to be something that makes it okay? Are you going to be okay with what I've done? But the crowds weren't having it. They wanted him dead. In verse 6, it says, when, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. In verse 15, it says, They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to him, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus. Now, crucifixion was a Roman art form. They took great pride in crucifixion. And crucifixion was so brutal that they, own, they, they, they had a law in Rome that they would not crucify a Roman citizen. They would put them to death some other way. But crucifixion was so brutal that they, they made sure that nobody who was a Roman citizen would ever have to go through the death, the brutal death of crucifixion. They beat him. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They, they threw a, a robe over him, mocking him, chanting, Hail, the king of the Jews. They led him down the way of sorrow, the Via Della Rosa in Israel, from the fortress where Jesus was beaten to the place where he would eventually be crucified. It's about a half mile walk. They made him carry his own cross. Verse 17, they took Jesus and went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. He was, he was whipped and beaten across his back and his shoulders and, and made to carry his cross across those same wounds. He had to carry it half a mile. He didn't make it all the way. And when he gets to the place of the skull, they they tie down his arms and his legs and they, they hammer nails into his, his wrists and nails into his feet. And then they, they hang him on the cross. This is what John writes in John 19 verses 26 and following. He says, when Jesus saw his mother and, and the disciple whom, whom he loved, John has given himself a shout out. Uh, the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother, care for each other like a mother and a son would. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch, and they held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. Can you imagine being the disciples the disciples had thought Jesus was on the scene, that he was going to become this military ruler and that they were going to sit at his right and his left as he ruled over, over Israel, as he became this incredible king of the Jews. 
They had hoped that, that his life would bring light to, to this world, that, that people would be saved from the Roman oppression. And their Savior now hung dead on a cross. I imagine the disciples were asking, How? How could this happen? Why? Why would God let this happen? Why, why, would, why would this be how everything ends? It's kind of like, have you guys ever seen uh, Avengers Infinity War? The ending is the worst ending in all of the movies because Thanos snaps his finger and what happens? Half the population disappears and then you have to wait a year to find out what happens next. And you'd leave that movie going, this is so heavy. I don't understand. Why did this have to end this way? That's the way that the disciples must have been feeling, but in such a larger scale. But why did Jesus have to die? Well, John, if we go back a few chapters, John tells us in John 3, 16 through 18, he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. He didn't send his son into the world to condemn what was happening in this world. He has a different purpose for him, that we might be saved through him. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. John writes some letters towards the end of his life. In his first letter that he writes, 1 John 4.10, he says, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, that's a big word, the propitiation for our sins, to be the payment in full for our sins. He was the payment that we needed, because remember, there's a, there's a necessity of the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins. We talked about that from Hebrews 9.22. That through the shedding of blood, we have reconciliation with God. That through the, the shedding of, of innocent blood, we have reconciliation. We've been purchased back, and now we have this union of God that we're, with God that we're brought back into. Sin separates us from God, but through the, the death on the cross, through our faith in Jesus, we're brought back into right relationship. And we're what the Bible calls justified or declared righteous. Romans 5, Paul writes this in verses 1 and following. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God. Sinners. People who have wronged God. People who have, who, who have rebelled against him. Now can have peace once again with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained, um, obtained access by faith into his grace. This grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So how do we receive this? How do we receive this gift of grace? How do we receive this reconciliation? How do we receive this new life? How do we receive this, this freedom that, that Jesus offers? Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. This is a message to my 17-year-old self who thought that all I had to do was be good enough. I just had to be good compared to other people. And then when I got to the end of my life, God would go, you know, you were, you were mostly good, so come into heaven. That's not the message of, of God's standard. It's not by works that we're saved. It's by this thing called faith. faith. It, it's grace through faith in Christ. I went skydiving once. Any of you been skydiving? No? Okay. Yeah? Right here? Good. Yes. So uh, it's the most terrifying thing I've ever done in my whole entire life. I did not want to do it. I did it to impress my wife, and it worked. I married her. <laughs> but, but there's two types of faith. There's two types of faith when you go skydiving. There's the faith on the ground. 
It's the faith, like, you believe that if you were in a plane and you jumped out, that the chute would probably open, right? It's not tested. There's no reason for you to, to worry much about it. You're just on the ground, and you're like, yeah, I think this is going to work out all right. But then there's a different type, type of faith, the faith in the plane. I'm telling you, I had my chute on. I had this expert skydiver strapped to my back, and I'm going, uh-uh, uh-uh. Uh-uh, I'm not going. Like, I, I was not going to jump out of this plane. And he just kept nudging me and nudging me. And I'm, we, we're standing at the door, like, hanging on to the bar. And I'm like, I'm not going to go. And he's like, okay. And then he just jumps. I had no, I, at that point, I had no, like, I, I had to have faith that the, the chute would open. I, want, I, I use this story to show you the, the word believe is, is so dangerous in the English. Because to believe, we, we have two different ways that we can believe. We can believe about something, faith on the ground. I believe that if I jumped, that that, that chute was going to open. But we also can have faith or believe in something. That's, that's where we put trust in something. It's so much deeper than belief about because it takes trust. It takes you being willing to put that faith to the test. And when we put our faith in Jesus, something has to happen. It's not just something that we're born with. We have to actually make a decision. Romans 10, 9 and 10, it says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, made right, pronounced innocent. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. So how do we know that Jesus is telling the truth? How do we know that Jesus really is the way, the truth, and the life? How do we know that no man comes to the Father except through him? It's the resurrection. John 19, this guy we met earlier, Nicodemus, the, the Jewish ruler, it says, Nicodemus also, starting in verse 39, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. This is a good indication that Nicodemus actually had faith, that he actually came back and had faith in Jesus. But he, he, he loved Jesus, and he, he came back, and he, he brought the, this mixture of myrrh and aloes, 75 pounds. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with, with the spices, as is the, the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So Jesus is wrapped 75 pounds of spices around him. And you guys, this is the part of the story everything comes down to. This is the part of the story that Paul says, if this, what I'm about to read to you, doesn't happen, then our faith is for nothing. Paul says, if this is untrue, what I'm about to read to you, then he says you ought to not have faith in Jesus. That's how significant this part, these nine verses are. John 20, verses 1 through 9. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. That's significant. Those stones were gigantic. They were heavy. No one person could do it themselves. Not only were they heavy, but they were guarded by Roman soldiers who, who if they let someone steal the body, they themselves would be put to death. So she ran, verse 2, and she went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, the same Peter that, by the way, that uh, he, he denied Jesus three times. Peter went out to the, with the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter. The other disciple, by the way, is John. He wants you to know he's faster than Peter. I find that really funny. Uh, he, he outran Peter and reached the tomb first. 
And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went right into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Jesus was wrapped in linen cloths. He had 75 pounds of spices on top of him. And yet, that was no issue for Jesus. He was, he was put into a tomb with a gigantic rock that had the Roman seal on it. And yet, that was no issue for the risen Savior. There were Roman guards posted outside of the tomb. And that was no issue for the Savior. He had died on the cross. Friends, that was no issue for the Savior. Our whole faith is tied up in this truth that Jesus rose from the dead. And it means so much that we can see how much it means in the life of the disciples. After Jesus was hung on the cross, only one disciple showed up, by the way, to the crucifixion. All of the others had abandoned him. They were all, they, they all had been, it feels like if they had been punched in the gut before the resurrection, they had lost all hope. And then the resurrection comes and Jesus appears to over 500 people over a 40-day period. 500 people that could have said, as soon as any of these gospels were written, 500 people who could have publicly said, look, I was there. Jesus didn't show up there lying. 500 witnesses who could all stand together and say, I saw the risen Savior. But maybe the best evidence for the resurrection is in the fact that out of the 12 apostles, the original 11 plus the apostle Paul, 11 of them died a martyr's death. Which means 11 of them were put to death specifically for their faith. That they could have at any time said, we, we made it up, we lied, it, we're just kidding. And they would have been let out of prison. They could have lived their lives and they could have gone on. But these disciples who at the, the crucifixion of Jesus were so defeated, they had seen Jesus rise from the dead and they got new life and new energy. And they were willing to die for what they believed. The gospel is this, that we were sinners, that we had rebelled against God, that we didn't, that we missed the mark, that we, that we deserved death, that compared to the standard of God, we, we've fallen extremely short, but God because of his love for us, he sends his son into the world to die on the cross. Not just to die, but to take on our death. So that, so that we would take on his righteousness. You guys pick that up? When Jesus died, he took on our death and we get to take on his righteousness. Anyone who believes in Jesus has the, the covering of Jesus as they stand before God. And he sees Jesus in us. And now we get to take on his righteousness. John says it this way in John 11. Jesus himself says to her, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asks her a question. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? If you're here tonight and you've never trusted in Jesus, that's the question I have for you. We've, we've walked through creation. We've walked through God's word. We've walked through Jesus' life and teachings. We've seen him time and time again prove that he is who he says he is. That he is the savior of the world. That he is the son of God. That he was there at creation. And that he did die on the cross for our sins. But if you're here and you've never trusted in that, something needs to happen. 
right here and right now. You have to first acknowledge your sin. 1 John 1, 9 says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You have to acknowledge that, that you missed the mark, that it's not just me standing on stage confessing my sins to you, but that everybody in this room, the band, me, the staff, you, your teachers, your parents, your sisters, that we're all sinners. We all have missed the mark. You have to acknowledge your sin. And then you have to acknowledge your need for Jesus, that we were dead in our trespasses, that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. And you, for yourselves, have to make the decision to place your trust in Jesus as the Savior of the world. That he did exactly what he said he would. He died in our place and that through faith in him, you can have eternal life. I'm going to ask you to do something for me. I don't want to lead you astray. I don't want to tell you that the life of a Christian is a life that, that needs no boldness. A, a life where you can just walk by in the, in the shadows and not have to stand up for your faith. The, the life of a Christian is a life that needs to be lived in boldness. It's, it's a life that, where you have to be not ashamed of the gospel as Paul puts it. And so we as Christians, we need more people to tell us that, that we need as followers of Jesus to be bold for our faith. And so if you're here and you put your trust in Jesus for the first time this week, if you said, if you came face to face with your sin and you said, I'm a sinner in need of grace, and you recognize for the first time that, that your parents' faith is not going to save you, that there's a decision that you need to make, if, if that's you here at camp, I'm going to ask you to stand up in just a second. And I'm, I'm going to, I will fully own the fact that this is a very terrifying situation for a middle schooler. Because you've got your friends sitting around you, and you've got your teachers that you've got to see next Monday, and you've got parents that you don't really know from, from schools that you don't really know, and you're sitting here making a very bold proclamation in front of a bunch of people you might not know. But let me tell you this. When you stand up, this place is going to go crazy. When you stand up, this place is going to cheer louder than you've heard it all week. But there's more. When you stand up, the Bible says there's a party in heaven. That the angels and the saints are cheering because you have been saved. That you were dead and you've been made alive. And so I am going to ask you to be bold. And I know the first one's always the hardest. I know I've got some student out there that's like, I don't mind being the first. Be the first. And watch what God does. So I'm going to ask you right now, if you're here and you have put your faith in Jesus this week for the first time, your faith, not your parents' faith, your faith, will you do me a favor? Will you just stand up so that we can cheer for you, so we can celebrate with you? I know the first, there we go. Yeah! Stay standing, stay standing for me. The first, the first one's always the hardest. Who else? Anybody else in here who has put their faith in Jesus for the first time? You guys, let's quiet down for just a second so we can get loud again. Let's give it up for them one more time. We have... We have two new sisters in Christ. That is worth celebrating. But there's another, you guys can have a seat. There's another group of you that I want to talk to. It's those of you who came to camp and you're, you're already followers of Jesus, but your life's just kind of been blah. Like you haven't been following Jesus. You, you've been kind of doing some things you know you shouldn't do. But your time up here at camp has refocused you on the gospel.
has refocused you on living your life for Christ. And I just want to I just want to give some some time for you. If if that's you, if you've made the the decision to refocus your life on Christ this week, maybe you've had some things going on back down the mountain, and 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 coming up here, God has just done incredible work in your life. If that's you, and you're you're so thankful for what Jesus has done to refocus you on Him and what it means to be a follower of Jesus, will you stand for me? Stand up for me if that's you. I want you guys to know, all of you who are standing, whether it was the two who put their faith in Jesus for the first time or all of you who are standing here tonight, see that staff back there? This is why they do what they do. This is why I come and get the privilege of sharing this message with you. Because the most, remember I told you the second most important question is who you're going to marry? The first most important question is who you say Jesus is. Because when you pass away someday, and you stand before God, there's only one answer that's going to get you to spend eternity with Jesus, and that is that Jesus is my Lord and Savior. And today we delight with all of you that the Lord has worked in your lives. Teachers, counselors, look around. This is why they came up here. And I want to pray for you guys. I want to pray Specifically for those of you who stood tonight, the, the two who put their faith for the first time. This is, what, this is the beauty that Paul writes about, about you. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. You two are new creations. You are new and you have life and you are no longer dead in your trespasses and we celebrate that. And I want to pray for all of you that are standing that the Lord would continue to work in your lives as you continue to stay focused on him. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you so much. Thank you for what you did in this chapel tonight. Thank you for what you've been doing in their lives all week Lord, we praise you for new life. Lord, we know that there is a party going on in heaven that you are celebrating. Lord, as the chief shepherd, the good shepherd, that that your sheep have been brought back to you. That you you have given them new life. That you have brought them into your eternity. That they will spend their eternity with you. And Lord, we just ask that your protection over them. Lord, as you continue to be their good shepherd. We love you. We celebrate with you tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.